Father in heaven, we will see as we work our way through Samuel of the importance of your living word to bring life from death. We'll see the power of your word to change nations. And so we confess this morning our need of you. Our need to hear your voice. Be at work, we pray. Speak to us. Unblock our deaf ears. In Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, um, I was having a conversation with a, a good friend. He's a school teacher, nobody in this room, I should say, and he was talking about some of the pressures of teaching. Um, the school where he works is going through quite a transition. And the phrase he used, more generally around our, our society and our culture, was this. It was of the dying art of leadership. That is, in our society at the moment... Perhaps we're really not that great at leading well. There are all kinds of reasons for that, and some of you will experience that, whether in being led badly by others from above or having to lead others, and not quite sure how to do that, really. But it's striking that phrase has stuck with me, the dying art of leadership. I don't know if you'd agree. You can come and chat to me afterwards. Leadership of course, is not something that the Bible is unfamiliar with. We will find leaders of all shapes and sizes through the pages of Scripture. They'll be littered with good ones and bad ones and indifferent ones. And What we'll see, though, as we dip into Samuel over these next couple of months or so, and it's certainly not a leadership manual, but we'll see it's a book where leadership matters a lot. It will primarily focus, of course, on the stories of Samuel, that's where the name comes from. Um, and then King Saul, and then King David, finally. And before we jump into chapter one, I want to try and just spend a bit longer, as I often do at the start of these series, to try and kind of orientate us as to why we're looking at this, where we are in the history of God's people, what's going on, to try and give us a bit of a handle on the book, and then why it matters, and why leadership particularly will matter in these pages. And so what we'll see is, we'll see it's a crucial time um, because of both where we sit in the story and also we'll see the state of the nation. I think. Where we sit in the story, well, it's a pivotal time. Lot hangs on these years. Why does Lot hang on these years? Because the story of God's people is that he has rescued a people for himself and they were to live lives that showed the nations what God was like, how beautiful their God was. He gave them his good word, his laws, that as they lived them out, people would look in and see him. So he's a God of truth and dependability, and his people, therefore, were not to lie. He's a God who is faithful and committed, and so his people were to be faithful and committed, to not commit adultery. He's a God who gives what his people need, and so they were not to covet or envy or desire what he had given other people. And as they lived their distinctive lives, the nations were to look in and say, wow, wow, I would love to know a God like that. I would love to know the God whom they serve, the God who has rescued them and who has delivered them and who loves them and who's provided for them. 
And this good land that God had promised his people, it's taken decades to get there. But in Samuel, we will see they are there. They have arrived. No longer are they nomadic. No longer are they trusting him for each step of the stage, for the journey, for provision, for protection. Now they are in. No longer are they setting up camp day by day by day. Now they are settled and at rest. And so the big question is, they're in the land. So what does it mean to live out these laws? As they get settled, what does it mean to live in a distinctive way, to be different? What does it mean to make this land their home? And if you were to carefully read through 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll see there are a number of themes and threads that work their way through. Three important ones, just to highlight for you, that we'll see as the weeks go on. I mean, it's worth saying that each of these three are pretty big deals in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. But three themes that weave their way. One is this idea of having a king. If you know your Bibles, you'll know Deuteronomy 17, we first read of kings. There are mixed motives that they have for wanting a king, but God gives them one anyway. Uh, We'll see that in our fourth sermon. The big question is, what kind of king will they go for? As they've settled, what sort of king will they look for? Who do they want to lead them? What matters most to them? Second theme is one of of kind of rest and worship. So they are settled now. They've they've got rest from enemies. They're not traveling. They've no, no longer got to do the kind of tabernacle thing, the large tent setting that up again and again and again. Now they have in mind a temple that they want to worship in a place. There'll be a place of sacrifice and priesthood, a place at the heart of the people where they can know their God. The third theme is this idea of life. You know, God is not there to rob them of life. God is not there to make everything grey for them. But this is how they were made by him to live. And if you live with his good and kind word at the heart of your lives, we'll see, then it will lead to a life of blessing. We'll see God is good. And so this is a time of transition for the people of God. No longer are they nomadic. No longer are they moving day by day by day, but they're settling down. And how are they going to live with God's word at the heart of their community now? Second question, though, is what's the state of the nation? And the answer is not great. In fact, it's pretty messy. It's not great at all. We're going to see that again week by week by week as we work our way through. But just three snapshots to give you a bit of a glimpse of that, just a taster of some of the stuff that we're going to see in the future weeks. And again, we're going to zoom in on leadership at this stage because leadership often reveals something of the wider issues. If the leadership is poor, and the nation will not be good. And when we read the Bible, sometimes we, what theologians talk about, three different kind of categories of leaders that we might have in mind. It's kind of a litmus test to how the people of God are doing. And they are prophets, and they are priests, and they are kings. Prophets and priests and kings. Now come with me first to 3 verse 1. If you're still on page 272, where we finish reading, just have a flick across to 273. And you'll see the state of prophets at this point. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Get this, in those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. 
Do you catch that? God's, God's not doing much speaking at this point. Why? Well, maybe in part it's due to the priests. The prophets then priests. Remember the priests? The priests were the people who sit in between the people and God. Serious, awesome, terrifying task. They represent God to the people. They represent the people to God. The priests were key. And yet look at chapter uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, page 272, second snapshot. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Or a bit further down onto the next page, verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You see, Eli, we've heard about him in the reading. We'll see him more in a bit. He's got two priestly sons, and they are taking advantage of their position as priests. I think actually it's the sort of timeless triad, money, sex, power. Do you see, they are taking more meat than they were meant to. They are greedy. They are taking advantage of the women serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and therefore they are abusing their power. Money, sex, and power at the heart of the priesthoods. Maybe that's why the Lord wasn't speaking much. Maybe that's why there are so few prophets at this point. Because if the priests were corrupt, who can blame the Lord? So prophets are rare. Priests are immoral. And what about the king? Well, we know, we've said that already, there is no king yet. The monarchy has not been established. But just... Glance back, if you can, to the end of the book of Judges, 266. I think it's chronologically the book that comes just before Samuel. And maybe you've seen this verse before, but the, the thing left ringing in our ears at the end of Judges, 21 verse 25, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Anarchy. That's the context. And so as the people begin to settle in the land, as they think through what does the law mean now we are settled, they need a leader. They need someone who will lead the Lord's people in the ways of the Lord, that the nations might see how beautiful and kind and good he is, what he is like. And so like moths attracted to a bulb, the nations will look in and just be transfixed. They will love it. They will think, wow. I want to know that kind of God. I guess if you've been around church things for a while, you might know that eventually in the book of Samuel, the books of Samuel, we get to King David, and he will be okay, but we'll only get so far with King David 
we will end up dissatisfied because there'll be false starts, because he will get it wrong, because humans are fallible. And what we'll see is we need a king, in fact we need a prophet, a priest and a king, who will perfectly lead the Lord's people. Who will lead the Lord's people in the ways of the Lord. We need someone called Jesus. And again and again and again, we'll see signposts in Samuel pointing us ahead to the kind of leader we need. A man truly after the Lord's own heart. A man who will form and shape the people of God around and through the word of God. Whom the nations will flood towards. And who one day will be gloriously worshipped from people from every tribe and tongue and nation. But enough of that, let's, let's get into the passage. Chapters 1 and 2. Um, flip back with me if you can. This is where it all sticks off, kicks off. And what do the people of God need the most? What do we always need the most? We need the word of God. We need him to speak. We need to hear his voice, his words, his words that can create and transform worlds. His words that will bring life and change and transformation. If ever you want to know what to pray for us at Magdalen Road, many, many things, but pray foundationally that we might hear the voice of God through his word, that he would speak clearly to us, and that he might bring life and transformation, that he might change us, that we would be shaped and nourished. And so God provides the prophet Samuel, one who will speak his words. One who will anoint his king. The word comes first. And therefore, for the first half of the book at least, Samuel is the main player in human terms. And therefore, it's for that reason that we focus in this morning onto a beautiful woman of faith. A lady called Hannah. A.K.A. Samuel's mum. And we see, despite her being in the midst of weeping and despair and anguish and pain and hardships, there is this beautiful trust in the Lord. Faced with the hardship, she seems to have turned not away from the Lord. As sometimes hardships do, she has turned towards him. And her faith seems to be encapsulated in the vow in chapter 1 and the rejoicing in chapter 2. Her vow is there in verse 11. Do you see it? Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Lord, if you'll give me a son, I will give him back to you. There's this reference to the, the never using a razor, some kind of Nazarite type vow, number six, if you'll look it up later. Someone specifically, deliberately set apart for the Lord and for his purposes. And then we'll see that the Lord answers. He kindly gives her this son. And her heart in chapter 2 bubbles over with joy and rejoicing, as Kat read so well for us. We get this stunning glimpse into who she is. What the Lord has been doing in her through these barren years. 
She has a real and a living and a stark faith. And it's stark because I think it's a contrast to the rest of the characters you get in chapter 1. Her beauty highlights their ugliness. There's the contrast with Eli, the priest. Again, we'll see more on him in weeks to come. But he seems to be largely largely spiritually blind and faithless. He's unable to distinguish this woman of faith, silently praying before the Lord, than a woman who's had beer and wine as their breakfast. We'll see in weeks more to come from him and his failings. Then you get Penina, the enemy wife. It seems that Penina seemingly has no trouble in procreating, And she takes every single opportunity to remind Hannah of that fact. Not just a slip of the tongue, it's year after year, verse 7. Again and again and again, meanly and deliberately ripping off the scab. Sticking her finger in there. Mocking her and her lack of kids. I wonder if there's a contrast as well, even with Alkana, her husband. Clearly he loves Hannah. Clearly, even she is his favorite and so receives some kind of preferential treatment. Verse 5, double portions of meat. I'm, I'm not convinced that might go down so well at home. You might be on thin ice if you have a favorite wife. But you can't help feeling that his silence has been there through years of teasing. It reveals something of his deficiency as a husband. Could he not have protected her? Could he not have dealt with it? And so against these three, here is Hannah, beautiful, extraordinary, faith and trust in the Lord. There's there's been a wrestling with the pain and the shame, but this real authentic grasp of the Lord, faith in him. Spiritually, the nation may have been in a dark place, but clearly there are still pockets of faith in women like Hannah. For the rest of our time, I just want to briefly focus in on her and really just one idea, and it's this. Again, there might be a slide. It's that God's ways are not our ways. God just doesn't do things as we would do them. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're looking in on Christian things or you're not sure. And Sometimes people say, well, look, you Christians, you've just made up the kind of God you want to believe in, a God who makes you feel better. I'm just not sure I get that. If you read the scriptures, if you read the kind of God outlined in the Bible, if I were to create a God, this would not be the God that I would make. If it were me, I would make him a bit tamer, a bit less challenging, a bit more controllable, a bit more at my whim, doing the stuff that I would like of him. But the drumbeat again and again and again in the Bible is that God's ways are not our ways. That idea seems to work out in two directions with Hannah. The first one is that there is a surprise at the heart of it. So that is, the whole thing is entirely off the radar. What, what would my solution be 
for people who are far from him. Imagine the darkness of the nation at this time. What would my solution be? It would be probably focusing on those families with potential. The noble stock, yeah? The, those who have come through the best rabbinic schools with the best grades, best at sport, probably the prefects or the head boys, the all-rounders, those kind of leaders, the kind of people whom others would follow and respect. But this just seems to be entirely off the radar. It's completely from left field. Verse 1, Ramathaim, essentially he's from nowhere. Alkanah, son of Jerohim, son of Elihu, he's a no one, and he seems to have two wives, which, as far as I read it in the scriptures, is never described in a good light. It always brings mess along with it. It always seems to be the Lord saying through the story, this is not how it's meant to be. And true to form, the family life is pretty dysfunctional with squabbling galore. And one of his wives even is barren. And forgive my bluntness, but he is a no one from nowheresville with a messy family life and a despairing woman as a wife. And that's where it all starts from. There's a surprise from a womb that cannot bear children and the Lord brings a hope and a future as only he can. And that truth ought to thrill us. And I'm not sure it does. I'm not sure it does as much as it should. It's examining my heart in that, and I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's partly with, if we've been in church for a while, we're, we're familiar with these things. You know, this is how God does it. We lose the wonder, we kind of come to expect it, because we know from the low ebb that's the way he sort of does stuff. That's his thing. But I wonder as well if partly it's our culture that we're in at the moment. There's a sense of entitlement. So maybe in previous generations, those reading Samuel, there'd be jaws dropping. The Lord uses someone like that, a situation like that. Are you serious? That's incredible. But for us in the West at the moment, well, of course he does, because everyone's special. Everyone's got potential, haven't we? Everyone can be whom they want to be. They can achieve what they want to achieve. Normal people can do whatever they want to do, of course. You, want, you see it on X Factor. Well, Britain's got talent. And at times it becomes clear someone should have told them they neither have talent nor X Factor. They should have had friends and family who told them the truth. But our contemporaries, we even think we are special and we can do anything. That is the, the culture that we swim in. We love it in the finalists on these programs. There's the backstory. They've wrestled adversity. They've been through bullying and they still achieve their dreams or whatever it might be. And so we find someone like Samuel and we're not surprised. Well, of course he's the underdog. Of course it resonates. Of course. Same old, same old. He's meant to be like that. That's how we do things. And yet I wonder if that is because, because of the way God made the world. And these little stories in our culture that we resonate with so much at the moment, these films or books or where normal nobodies, where underdogs win, is because they are shadows of the bigger story. They are pointers to the true overarching story in the scriptures. To put it bluntly, the Bible doesn't copy the X factor 
X Factor copies the Bible. That's why they resonate. Because they are shadows of the bigger story, the bigger picture. And it's still the way God does it. Now, it's true to say that at times in the Bible there are certain people or places or situations where people with positions of influence are put in. So think Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Think Queen Esther. Think Joseph in Genesis. There are others as well. But usually God uses those from left field, off the radar, non-strategic, the surprises, so that we know it's about him. That's why at the heart of the Bible is a hopeless death. That's why at the heart of the Bible we will see an empty tomb. Because from death he brings life. From hopelessness he brings hope. And it's worth saying, I think that's a truth that we need to engage with and embrace more in our increasingly marginal church. Where we have less and less and less influence and status. Because we are increasingly marginalized. And yet that is a good thing because we can rejoice at the way the Lord works. It's the way he's always done it. Maybe it's true for you. You feel like the only person in your office who is a Christian. And you feel alone and you feel weak. But it's the way he's always done it. Maybe it's us as we sit in a primary school gym and it feels a bit small and a bit embarrassing and a bit awkward. But it's the way the Lord has always done it. His ways are not our ways. There is this surprise that he uses those coming in from the left field to bring about his plans and purposes. Back to Samuel. Maybe you spotted them as we, as we read it. We must see the parallels with Hannah as she gives birth to Samuel, with Mary, as she gives birth to Jesus. Hannah, in many ways, is meant to point us ahead to Mary. Mary, too, was a total no-one, off the radar, left field. Both of them were unlikely surprising mums who wrestled in different ways with confusion and with shame. But they were both wonderfully entrusted with essential children in God's plan for his world. Both women of faith. Without Samuel, there'd be no King David. Without King David, there'd be no greater King David. There'd be no Jesus. And so here they come with their faith-filled songs of rejoicing and praise to the Lord in response as he gives them children. And so the second way in which God's ways are not our ways, as we focus in on Hannah, that is the idea of switch. <coughs> So you see, after Hannah's vow and Eli's blessing, Hannah becomes pregnant and you see that Samuel is born. And she weans him and she is faithful to her vow and her promise and she entrusts him then to Eli. It's almost, we'll see, like a kind of semi-adoption that happens. And so pick it up with me at verse 24. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and Ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. She said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live. I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. Brackets, you thought I was drunk. I prayed for this child 
And the Lord has granted me what I asked of him, so now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah rejoices. She rejoices in chapter 2 with the focus of her prayer being this switch that will occur in the kingdom of God. The, The strong are brought down. The weak are exalted. The proud are deflated. The humble are raised up. Verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, and she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. And some of those things we will encounter as we work our way through Samuel. The series will progress. We'll see there is a Davidic king enthroned, established. A land of justice will be seen. God's law is lived out. Truth will reign. Justice will be served. The arrogant will be humbled. People will be cherished. The poor will be protected. The nations will see what he is like. They will see that he is good. But living under his word is the place to be. And Hannah knows that. She knows that he is good. Chapter 2, this is not one of those thank you letters that simply outline all the things that God has given us. Now this is her rejoicing in him. The one who is incomparable. The one who answers her prayers. Verse 1, my heart rejoices in the Lord. You see, verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. She, she knows him and she loves him. But for the nations to be changed, for the nation to come and see what he is like, to see how good he is, we need the king in place who will come and lead and shape the people of God, which is why Hannah ends her song as she does. You see, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And we'll see that in chapter 16. Finally, King David will be anointed by the prophet Samuel, Hannah's son. But again, Hannah's song points us to Mary's song, sometimes called the Magnificat. It's a song, again, of rejoicing and reversals, a song about a king who will change the world forever. It's a song about Jesus. God's ways are not our ways. God's kingdom that Hannah sings of, that Mary sings of, is not a kingdom of survival of the fittest. It's a kingdom of grace and mercy. It's a kingdom where the weak are valued and loved and cherished and cared for. It's a kingdom where a king will come and bring a manifesto and it will say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when that king came, 
And when he outlined his manifesto of what greatness looks like, well, so this world has never been the same again. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we live in a world where survival of the fittest can so easily be the motto. Indeed, it can be something that seeps its way into our hearts and to our attitudes. We confess our pride before you. Lord, we acknowledge that you don't do things as we would do them. Your ways are not our ways, and yet we long that our ways would increasingly become your ways. Thank you for the, the surprise of where Samuel came from, of where Jesus came from. Thank you that they were not the likely powerful men, but rather from hopeless places you brought hope. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us and through us, that where we feel small and insignificant, where we seek so often to trust in our own strength or what others will think of us, we pray that we might look to you. We pray along with John the Baptist that we might become less, that you might become more. And we pray increasingly that our values would be like your values, that that churches like this would be made up of people who are humble, who care for the poor, who care for those whom others don't care for. Thank you for the switch that we see in your kingdom. Change the way we think, please, that increasingly we might become members of that kingdom, increasingly like our king. And where we get this wrong, we thank you for, we thank you for the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that it's there we find grace. Thank you that it is there that we see how much you love us. Change us, please, that we might love you and love one another. Amen.